As with any sacred moment when we open God's Word together, uh, my hope is that the last few weeks have been uh, a time not just interesting and informational, not just a, wow, I didn't know that, but actually uh, transformational in your relationship with God. Um, because I, I really believe that by knowing the names of God and then using those names that God has given us to address Him, um, I think it can challenge us and I think it can change us. And especially as we've noticed the situations, the circumstances, usually pretty serious circumstances where these names have been given or have appeared, um, I think we can relate those to our situation and uh, see that we can call out to, to God, Yahweh Yireh or Rafe or those different names of God, El Shaddai, when we're in different situations. Tonight, uh, we're going to finish with a very special name, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace, uh, which is a beautiful name of God, who, after all, who doesn't want more peace in their lives? Who is wanting less peace in their lives? I don't think anyone is. And so I think this is one of the most winsome names of God. Um, one of the most alluring names. Because peace is something that so many sense a lack of in their lives. Outer lives, inner lives. Sometime back I found this on the, uh, this article and I thought it was was really cool. It's written by Bonnie, Bl Bonnie Ware, who is an Australian nurse. She, she specializes in palliative care. So she works, uh, she's worked over the last 20, 30 years with, with lots and lots of patients who are in the end stages of their lives, and they know it. And she put together, as she's been working, and she's met all these people and heard all of these what they, they're thinking about, what they care about as they look at kind of the final stretch of life. Um, she witnessed what she said was a, quote, phenomenal, phenomenal clarity of vision in these patients who were in their final days of life. She has observed that when questioned about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, that several common themes emerged. And so here are uh, several of the themes. Number one, she heard this over and over again. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And then she noted, health brings a freedom few realize until they no longer have it. So the, fr the freedom to be me and not have an agenda imposed by others. That's something that people in the final stages of life expressed over and over to her. Second, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. She recorded that, quote, many people suppressed their feelings in order to keep peace with others. Many patients developed illnesses related to the bitterness and resentment they carried as a result. They were not putting that out there. They were not telling people how they felt. They were storing it up. They were tamping it down. Um, number three, many said, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And then she notes, there are many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they are dying. And finally, they expressed to her, I wish I'd let myself be happier. She noted, 
Many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice. They had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits. So basically, they were doing a lot of things that made them unhappy, but that's just what they always did. And then as they got to the final stages of life, they were thinking, why did I do that? Why didn't I do something different? Well, the insights that she gleaned can be helpful to those of us who still have time to make course corrections. We can express our feelings. We can spend more time with friends. Um, and that's good and helpful uh, to gather wisdom from others so that we don't have to learn those lessons the hard way. That's a good thing. Uh, the sad part about what she found, I think, is the turmoil, is the regret that so many of her patients, and I think we could generalize so many people feel when they know the end is near. Um, that's sad, this lack of peace, uh, these longings from restless hearts. So tonight, as we close out our series on the names of God in the Old Testament, we'll talk about this restlessness and this name that God has given us, the Lord is my peace, and what that means um, for us. Uh, in contrast to some of the more obscure names we've considered, I think this one is very recognizable to us. This word shalom, we've heard this word. So Yahweh shalom, the Lord is my peace. It's, it's, it's an idea we should be familiar with. Um, something that uh, is good to honor is this, is this name and this word in Hebrew, shalom. It's not as simple as just translating it into peace. I mean, we can do that, and that's what our English Bibles do. But as with many things, the word is much richer in the original language. Hebrew is not a precise language. Um, it's a poetic language. It is not a fine-tuned language. And for the Hebrews, shalom means more than just what we would think of as peace. Because typically when we talk about peace or inner peace, peace in relationships or world peace, um, what we're talking about is the absence of something. Absence of conflict. The absence of fighting. The absence of war. And shalom is a lot more than the absence of something. Um, shalom isn't simply the absence of agitation, the absence of strife. Uh, it involves wholeness, completeness, and general wellness. And now what we're doing tonight should, I think, dovetail nicely with what we've been doing on Sunday mornings in the Take It In series. Um, because what we've been seeing over and over again is that God is the source of so much of what we admire. The virtues that whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist, the virtues that people in general admire, we find in their perfect form in, in God. Um, he is the satisfier of our soul's longings, of the restlessness that we feel. And if you're a worshiper of God, if you're a follower of Christ... That's not a big surprise. I mean, if you believe that each person is created by God and you believe that each of us bears, to some degree, the stamp of the image of God in our hearts, uh, that our lives were generated by God for His glory, then it follows that only God is able to fill the hole that each person senses in their heart. And the only one who can fill the void is God. Unfortunately, as we know from personal experience and from general observation, people try to fill it with all sorts of other stuff. 
Uh, the fancy word in the Old Testament for that is idolatry. It's looking to other things to fill the void that I feel. Uh, these attempts to find peace somewhere other than God, these attempts have been going on since the beginning. In the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll just kind of fast forward through many places we could stop, but just go to the book of, of Judges, and that's where we're going to be in chapter 21 here in a few minutes. But the entire book of Judges is an interesting story of this dynamic, this cycle that's at work throughout the Old Testament. Um, and we get a view, and it involves drifting away from God and then kind of coming back to God at some point. And they repeat this cycle the Israelites do over and over and over again just in the book of Judges. They would slide into idolatry. They would begin worshiping other gods. They, it's not like they just said, we don't love Yahweh anymore. They just added other gods. That's typically what happened. And then slowly, they would kind of forget who they were. They would lose their own sense of identity as God's chosen people. And they would begin falling into all sorts of sin and all sorts of depravity. But God never gave up on them. That's one of the interesting things, not only in Judges, but the entire Bible. God never gave up on them. Most often, to get their attention, He would make them vulnerable to outside attack. So they would be attacked, or at other places, they would be taken off into exile. But God or send a disease on His people. He would do different things to wake them up, to get their attention. Uh, often a neighboring people would invade and would punish the people, discipline them, oppress them. God's people would grow weary. Uh, they would eventually feel so much pressure, so much sadness, uh, so much pain uh, because God was applying pressure to them through these relentless attacks that they would eventually come back around get on their knees, and cry out to God for help. And that just happens over, 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 over. Um, God, who dearly loved His people, when they would spiral out of control and finally come back to Him and cry out to Him, He would send a liberator. He would send a man or woman to lead the people and to end the oppression. Right? Lots of examples of that. Obviously, that's the story that repeats itself over and over in Judges. Gideon and Deborah, Samson, and a host of others. And so he would allow Israel then to conquer their enemy, conquer their oppressor, and find peace once again in the land. And this cycle of drift and disobedience, discipline from God, it would repeat itself over and over, but God never quit. He would keep listening for his people, people's cry. And it's really kind of amazing. great example of God's graciousness and his chesed, his, his unfailing mercy. Um, every time they would get weary of being attacked by their enemies and finally turn back to God in desperation, every time calling on God for help, he would intervene and he would deliver them. Now, I guess the sad part is that in the book of Judges, this cycle... As it repeats, it gets more pronounced, right? You go through the book of Judges, every time the cycle repeats, virtually every time, the people drift a little farther away. Okay? 
they abandoned God a little more fully. So we get to Judges chapter 21, and you get this sense in the final words of this book of just the situation in general, right? The zeitgeist of the time. Judges 21, the final verses of the final chapter. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went, to, went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, right? Everyone did as he saw fit. You may hear some echoes of that in our culture today and what we value. We do as we see fit. Um, the, the good side of that would be independence, um, the, the, the pendulum swings way over into that. It becomes outright mutiny and rebellion against God. I'm just going to do whatever I think. I'm my own God, you know. I'm, I'm my own comp- compass. And so as we notice these cycles of sin, of drift, of rebellion, and then restoration, a toll is taken on the people of God. They, as we go through the book, and we end up here in chapter 21, they've lost all sense of, in, uh, of national identity they're disintegrating into their smallest groupings, clans and families, and individual, I do what I think is right. Um, so that's pretty much how it ends up in that, in that series of, of stories from judges. They just, each person does whatever they think is best. No central government, no identity as a nation, as a, a unified people, no moral compass of walking with the Lord, uh, no looking to him for justice, for righteousness, but just doing what you think's right. And so at the end of the book of Judges, Israel is in a time of disarray and disintegration. Israel didn't know peace. Why didn't they know peace? Because they didn't know God. <laughs> they didn't know God. And it wasn't that God, as you read these stories, it's not like God is turning away from His people. It's very clearly that they are choosing to turn away from God. They're becoming increasingly less connected to God by their own choices. Now, I would point out, I think it's good to point out, that at this phase in their history, they are still living in the promised land. They're living in that place that God promised them that they did, yes, through Joshua's leadership, they did take possession of the promised land. That's where they are. That's where you find them. So, I walk away from this thinking, or one of the things I walk away thinking is, you know, is it possible that you can metaphorically be in the promised land, but spiritually be far from God? Yeah, that's what was happening. You can occupy God's space, and your heart can be far from God. Um, I think there are a lot of ways you can think about that. But, but yeah, the people had taken possession of the land, but they had not allowed the Lord to take possession of them. So you can be in the promised land in one sense, and far from God in a deeper sense. You can attend church regularly, week after week show up year after year at church and have no experience or very little experience of God on a personal level. It's possible to read your Bible and not hear God's voice, right? Of course, it's possible to do that. Um, Can a person do 
the sorts of things that look Christian-y while missing out on a relationship with God? Yes, of course they can. And they're good questions to think about. You can be, by all appearances, in the space of the promised land, but not be connected to the promiser, not be connected to God. And so we see that cycle in Judges, cycle repeating itself over and over again. Uh, Every time, amazingly to me, stunningly, God decides to hear the prayers of his people and get involved and rescue these people because they cry out on his name. So, always ready to raise up a hero, always ready to send a deliverer, but even as you read through Judges, even the heroes start looking shaky. Shakier and shakier and shakier as you go through the book of Judges. Uh, I mean, you end up with people like Samson, not exactly a paragon of, of virtue and godliness. And now right in the middle of this turbulence, this cycle of Israel's history, one of the liberators, one of the deliverers that God raises up is this fellow named Gideon. And I have to tell you, it's excruciating for me as a preacher. We're not going to really dive into the details of the story, which is a preacher's dream. I mean, it is a target-rich story, all sorts of great stuff in the story of Gideon, because we really want to get to this name that God reveals to Gideon. But we will set a little bit of the stage. This time in Israel's history, it is a group called the Midianites that are wreaking havoc on God's people. They would send raiding parties into the promised land, and they would just grab whatever they wanted. Well, it's time for the harvest. It looks like the Israelites are ready to harvest their crops. Let's go take all their crops. And they were stronger, and they could do that, and that is exactly what they did. They took crops, they took gold, they took possessions, they took livestock, they took people for their own. The Midianites would just do this over and over again. Um, And when they would attack, the Israelites would kind of go into hiding. They would hide in holes. They would hide in, 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 in a wine press area. They would hide in caves. Uh, they would seek refuge um, when they knew the Midianites were coming in. Uh, talk about a time of stress and turmoil, lack of peace. And so here's Gideon. When he is called by God, it is a time for his nation when there is no stability whatsoever um, for God's people living in the promised land. So Judges chapter 6. Let's go to Judges chapter 6. Gideon comes on the scene. We'll start with verse 11. We've got the calling here. The calling. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress in order to keep it from the Midianites. Just consider that. He's threshing wheat, not where you would normally thresh wheat, but he's in hiding in a wine press, so the Midianites aren't going to get wind of it, aren't going to steal the wheat. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And again, target rich. He, he's hiding. I mean, it's just kind of funny that he would be called Superman here, mighty warrior, when he's in hiding. Verse 13, But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, good question here, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Maybe you've asked that question before. If God is with me, why is this happening in my life? 
Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in, into the hand of Midian. And I like his honesty. I appreciate that. You're having a conversation with an angelic being and you're, you have the courage to at least ask honest questions. And he does. One, if you're with us, why is all this bad stuff happening to us? And two, if you're with us, where are the miracles? We've heard stories of miracles in the past. We could use one right now. Also reassuring to know that when times of trouble and conflict, sickness, or disaster strike, it does not mean that God is missing. Clearly, he had not abandoned his people, even though many of them, I'm sure, like Gideon, thought he had. Verse 14, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So that's God's answer. God's answer is essentially, I'm taking the situation over. I've been here all along, but I'm getting involved. And I am calling you to be my instrument of deliverance for the people. 15. But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike all the Midianites, strike down all the Midianites together. So answer to the question, to all of those questions basically is, I'll be with you. End of questions. I've got this. So how does Gideon respond to this calling from God? Does he think he's the right man for the job? No. Why doesn't he? Well, he's pretty sure he's not the hero that the Lord is looking for because his group, his family, his clan, not the most impressive, not the strongest. And personally, he's the least in this unimpressive group. And the moxie of the guy... I mean, you remember this part of the story probably from flannel graph days. The moxie of the guy, he asks for a sign to prove it, right? Prove that this calling is for real. So he asks for a sign. Then, yeah, he asks for another sign. Then, uh-huh. He asks for even another sign. The guy wanted to be 100% absolutely certain that this is not some sort of hallucination. He's not imagining this. This is real. The God of Israel is calling me to lead the people against the Midianites. And honestly, I don't really hold that against him. I don't. I mean, we've all felt like that before. We've all felt like God... I know God wants me to do this or to make this change or to move here or to begin doing this, but it's a big move. It's going to involve some sacrifice, uh, and you want to be certain. So that's how Gideon felt, and that's how we feel sometimes, I think. And now the text gives us a clue as to what Gideon was really afraid of at least a lot of it, 
it didn't have to do with the Midianites, with the enemy. It had to do with the, with the God who was calling him to face the Midianites. Um, it was really scary to have an encounter with the living God. Verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, so apparently he hadn't realized the whole time that it was, but when he realized, he exclaimed, Oh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. Verse 24, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it Yahweh Shalom. He called it, the Lord is my peace. So there's our name, Yahweh Shalom. For the record, this is the beginning of the story, um, of Gideon's story, that is. At this point, he hasn't tried to recruit anyone to join his army. He hasn't fought any Midianites. Um, so this altar that he's building and calling it Yahweh Shalom. This is a faith-based altar. It is a belief that peace is given to him by the Lord and that victory is sure to follow. The Lord is my Shalom. The Lord is my wellness. The Lord is my wholeness. The Lord is my peace. The Lord is my safety. That's what that means. Now, as the blood-bought people of Christ... We have, I think, an even greater appreciation for this, for the shalom that comes through God. Um, you've heard Philippians 4, 7 before, beautiful verse about what we have. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in Isaiah, was it chapter 9, there are, there's a lot, of, as you've been reading this year and you're all in, a lot of prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah, right? Um, some of those uh, have to do with his identity. Isaiah 9, I think it's verse 6, calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And so as we grow up in Christ according to Paul, as we grow up in Christ, we grow up into this peace that occupies our minds, that occupies our hearts, and it is a peace, and I like this part, it is a peace that we can't really describe fully. Or as Paul says, it transcends understanding. It's beyond, beyond our ability to comprehend Not a peace that we have been able to iron out with God. Uh, it's a peace that we have been gifted, that we have been graced with because of Jesus. You see, we, each one of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We had drifted from God. We had rebelled against God. We had found ourselves in a lost and desperate situation. And God sent a deliverer. He sent the deliverer, Jesus, who intervened on our behalf and at Calvary took on Satan, took on death, took on sin, and defeated them. 
And we were in conflict with God, but now we stand forgiven, redeemed, and hopeful because of that sacrifice. Now we are friends of God through Jesus. As we talked about earlier, everybody wants shalom. Everybody wants it. Everyone wants more peace, not less peace in their lives. So quickly, let's kind of think about the shalom of God operating at different levels in our lives and how it is different from the other lesser pieces that we chase after. Um, When these other sources of peace run dry, they offer only temporary relief. They're far weaker than the peace that comes from God, the shalom we get from the source. Real peace begins, I think, for us. The peace that surpasses understanding begins when we recognize that we are easily fooled into looking for peace in other places. Big fat IRA, the best medical team, the ideal relationship, the more prestigious job, or the the material thing that I I think it's the missing piece. If I get that, life's going to come together. It'd be just great. And so if we take God out of this equation, people tend to look to all sorts of things and all sorts of people and all sorts of situations to manufacture a sense of peace in their lives. And the temptation for us, the, the big one, and the temptation that we watch the Israelites struggle with over and over again is the temptation to believe that somehow my sense of peace comes from tweaking my situation, from me making things a little better, ordering my world so that I have the peace that I've been looking for. It doesn't work. (laughs) The new job, the new wife, the new baby, uh, the new house, the new whatever, it doesn't bring us the peace we're looking for. Uh, God's shalom is different than tweaking your circumstance Um, In fact, your life can be, for lack of a better word, your life can be a mess. And you can still enjoy God's shalom in the middle of that. In the middle of the storm, you can find His peace. In the middle of the disaster, you can find His peace. If you look for it. If you're open to it. And in the end, things worked out for Gideon. Things worked out for Israel, at least for a time. Judges chapter 8, verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. 40 years of peace. Not bad. But in Christ... We look forward to an eternity of shalom. Let's bow our heads and pray. Yahweh shalom. You, the Lord, are my peace. You are our peace. 
We call upon you, Yahweh Shalom, to bring into our lives, our minds, our hearts, that peace that we so desperately long for and that we often sense is lacking. We want a peace, Father, that you promise, not one that has an expiration date, not one that is shallow, not a peace that simply numbs us, and certainly not a peace that is merely the absence of conflict. We want the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. We want that shalom that, that surpasses our ability to understand. And so we cry out for that tonight. And we pray, God, that we will not only be the recipients of this peace in Jesus Christ, but that we will be ambassadors of this peace in this broken world. So much division. So much bitterness, so much mistrust. May we be bridge builders and carriers of peace in the name of Christ. In our Dallas mission field, in our families, in our places of work, may we be your people of peace because you are our Yahweh Shalom. We thank you for the peace that we have in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray tonight. Amen. Let's be standing and let's worship together.